to the Jungle Times, a podcast that explains how understanding nature's management principles can help you enhance your personal power and leadership skills. In a world beset by climate change, mass migration, and social unrest, fake news and bad politics are threatening the future of our planet. This series of timely presentations will demonstrate how nature's 4.5 billion years of success is based on the emergence of creative leaders. It is my pleasure to introduce your guide, the only researcher on Earth who treks tropical jungles in a wheelchair, author and training consultant, Lawrence Poole. Hello, and welcome to the Jungle Times podcast. I'm Lawrence Poole, and this is Episode 4, How Nature Favors Creative Leaders. In this presentation, I'll tell you about five strategic roles that will help you transform your life and increase your creative capital. On the last show, I said four conditions contribute to complex situations, and I told you how to encode problems caused by them so they can be resolved. I explained three landscapes that allow us to understand complexity, and then I discussed nature's nine self-management principles. I suggested our saving grace is the eighth principle, self-awareness, because it gives us a feedback loop where we see our own behavior. We can understand the circumstances of our lives. Self-aware, we can give value to our structural capital, our client capital, and our creative capital. Listen to episode number two, where I explain each of these ideas. Nature's ninth principle, self-empowerment, then tells us that we can change the circumstances of our lives by adding value to our capital worth. We can grow, we can become more creative, and we can thus prosper. In these jungle times, you should know that nature favors creative adaptation. As you learn to adapt, your leadership skills will naturally evolve. The management rule you must adopt in order for nature to steer its course is called altruistic self-interest. As I often mention, there are no exceptions to nature's rules. We cannot break a law, even if we can break ourselves against it. Mind you, this doesn't stop bad and stupid people from trying. I've described bad people as those me-first predators, while stupid people are they who work against the common good without any thought of personal gain or advantage, just like parasites. I venture to suggest that predators and parasites are responsible for most of the world's problems. Take a look at your local newspaper or on the internet for confirmation. Articles will tell you that American President Donald Trump often acts against his own interests. Alarmingly, this is the definition of a stupid person. His refusal to wear a face mask or to respect social distancing during the pandemic is an example of this. His position, mimicked by his supporters, undercuts the efforts of his own public health officials to stop the resurgence of the COVID-19 virus. He is thus impeding his own efforts to revive the U.S. economy, which is staggering under the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression, and his self-sabotage has pushed him into the deficit numbers for winning his re-election. They leave his public health officials mystified as to his irresponsible behavior. In spite of its management being called a slow-moving nightmare, a significant number of American voters still hold the opinion that this pandemic is a hoax. 
Others believe it's a sign of the biblical end days. They think the world will soon be destroyed by God, and they have a vested interest in making that vision come true. You can find opinions of every stripe and opinions on those opinions on the Internet. What you should know is this. Beliefs compel behavior. And as Forrest Gump so cleverly pointed out, stupid is as stupid does. In these jungle times, we must deal with fake news, alternate facts, and elaborate hoaxes that plague the world. The information I've shared so far in my first three broadcasts leaves me with no doubt that nature's intent is for every individual to empower himself in order to help fix our problems even if predators and parasites will continue to use disinformation to get their way. Digital technology has given them the power to create chaos, and they easily influence greater numbers of vulnerable people who are their prey. Fake news is described as any information published with the intent of misleading people and damaging the credibility of an individual or an institution. In the chaos that is created, Predators and parasites gain financially and politically. They spread dishonest and fabricated news because it advances their agenda. Have you heard of clickbait stories? These are fake news articles that earn revenue by holding our interest. Clickbaiting uses brief descriptions that are designed to grab your attention and entice you to follow hyperlinks that lead to deceptive and misleading content. A characteristic of this kind of practice is that it begins with an enticing headline. Why a favorite celebrity is under arrest, for example. Any teaser that exploits curiosity is fair game. The story then provides just enough information to make you act and click forward, but not enough to satisfy your curiosity until you are exposed to the intended content. Clickbaiting is dishonest because the product doesn't reflect the promise. The bait aspect of the term is taken from fishing, where a hook is disguised as bait to give fish the impression that it's a good thing to eat. Before internet, this kind of practice was known as bait-and-switch con. Back then, con artists could rob far fewer people, but internet has multiplied their client capital. Do you know about troll farms? These are professional groups of internet hackers whose name is to influence decision-making. A study informs us that 30 governments worldwide have internet armies that are engaged in spreading false news and propaganda. According to reports, these same governments use paid commentators, trolls, and autobots to erode our trust in media and community groups. The study says attempts were made to influence the elections in 18 of these countries, and yet some still deny the facts, even if they come from our own intelligence services. The predators and parasites will come from the whole spectrum of society, without regard from any other category of person. Bad and stupid people come from every race and religion. They can be men or women, young and old, rich and poor, gay or straight, educated or not, political or not, successful at it or not. There's an excellent documentary on YouTube that describes the behavior of psychopaths. Produced by the CBC will help people who have trouble imagining humans as predators remove their rose-colored glasses. I'll put the URL link in the description to this episode of the podcast as you would really profit from seeing this video.
The reasons for our different way of seeing the world is an important aspect of human nature. We are perceivers. We perceive a world of paradigms. No one receives an objective view of the world out there. We assemble our worldview in here from the random data we receive from out there. How we do it makes for the differences between us. People will assemble the same data and arrive at different perceptions. Our worldview is created from a series of neurological models we are assembling in our brain. And our brain, science tells us, is composed of a hundred billion neurons. If you imagine each of those neurons as if a single image, assembling 12 images per second creates a live action film. Our constant assemblage of bits of data is the flow of perceptions we call mind. Neurons in our brains are being connected by energy, consciousness. So the formula is consciousness plus brain equals mind. More than a brain, we are brain-mind. It's not either or, it's both. We have both a biological brain and consciousness, a ceaseless flow of energy. This gives us an incredible power. We can consciously select our perceptions of the world. Our billions of neurons can be connected in many ways. We can literally assemble a worldview of infinite potential, except for the effect of paradigm. The effect of paradigm is the fact that assembling a perception of what is is exactly what's preventing us from assembling what could be. We humans entertain our ideas according to preconceived models of how things should be. We inherited a genetic baggage, so we have many pre-made perceptions, and then we were trained since birth to view the world through specific family and then tribal lenses. So by the time we go out into the real world, we perceive it with a mind that is largely made up. So we see racial divides, religious differences, national interests, political views, language particularities with opinions and preferences, and models of entitlement for us and for others, even if we deny this. We see differences because they do exist. The paradox is that all of these differences in fact have the exact same cause. They are the limited worldview that's etched into our brain mind and which prevents us from accessing an infinite potential. Science refers to our perceptual view as the world of paradigms. A Greek word meaning model, the neurological concept was studied in academic and business jungles where it's defined as a set of ideas that form a perspective a view. Paradigms describe a personal way of looking at a situation. If you change paradigms, you change how you think about a situation. We're currently going through a paradigm shift brought about by this pandemic. But there are many ways of having to change your mind. I mentioned how I changed my worldview in the ordeal that I experienced when I was paralyzed in a car crash. I had no choice. I was thought dead four times and have a total recall from two of those experiences. I was out of my body and I saw the creating light. I perceived God energy animating life and that perception changed my whole paradigm. It changed how I see the world. We all know that everything is energy. Einstein's e equals MC squared proves that, but not everyone gets the fact that everything is energy all the time. 
as Max Planck's quantum equation equals HF proves. Energy is a constant frequency. Energy is available at a constant frequency. Very few people understand that limitless energy can be accessed at five magnitudes of light. And most don't know that the limitless oscillations of vibrating energy of the universe is the L-O-V-E, limitless oscillations of vibrating energy, the L-O-V-E, the love of God. I'll tell you more about this in episode number five. I never tried to convince anyone about my experiences, but they did make my believing in Creator rather redundant. My personal beliefs were merely confirmed. The difference is that before I could visit God in prayer or in church, but now I find Him in all of nature and its laws and rules. And I know how humans can access an infinite potential just beyond their limited paradigm. Examine your own baggage and chart a profile of your strengths and weaknesses. Then you can, to a large extent, influence your life in very creative ways. Rather than react to decisions made in some youthful indiscretion, build a future you want by changing the present. You can connect your hundred billion neurons in different ways, and you can even create brand new neurons to connect. There's a lot of potential to work with. As I explain, we are more than the sum of our parts. Science is exploring the brain's neuroplasticity, and the research shows that we can change our view of the world and our potential in it by tracing new neuropathways. We can't erase what's already there, but we can add to it. The brain has the ability to reorganize itself, and we can help. Neuroplasticity tells us that nerve cells can compensate for injury and disease. How we adapt and respond to new situations or changes in the environment show us this. We can paradigm shift into a whole new reality and even transcend our moral and spiritual limits if they don't serve us anymore. We are no longer prisoners of our limits, even if most people aren't aware of the power that they have yet. Every day, without even thinking about it, we create new neural connections anyway. Whenever we complete a new chore, or try a new dish, or take a different route to work, we etch neural pathways that are different. If we visit a far-off place, if only on TV, we memorize pictures and record memories. New neural pathways can be chosen. I will visit Antarctica. I will learn computer programming. I will open a shelter for homeless people, etc. These add value to the whole. This gives us an amazing power. We are more than the sum total of all of our parts. We are all that we can be, too. Every new neural connection contributes to a transformation of some sort, so why not choose to etch the neural pathways you will most profit from? You can decide what to be when you grow up, and then all you need do is invest the time to etch the neural links that will make your wish come true. You can add any new experience. Make a bucket list of those physical, emotional, or sexual, intellectual, cultural, or spiritual links that you'll want as memories before you go into that great darkness. They say you can't take it with you, but they're wrong. We take our experiences with us in the form of memories. List the memories that you want. Based on our own bucket list thinking, Susie and I have visited Costa Rica 43 times. We crisscrossed Mexico and Central America. I became the guy who treks jungles in a wheelchair. 
but I also visited most of Canada, a lot of the USA, and Europe. I wrote my first bucket list after hitting that pole, but I completed it three months later after leaving the hospital. Then I realized what a puny list I had made, so I started thinking big, and trekking jungles soon followed. As long as you are changing, why not do it consciously and choose what you want to change into? Do you have physical challenges to consider? Do you have moods that need adjusting? What about old ideas, memories, and relationships that darken your spirit? How will you choose to experience tomorrow? Will you be happy, or will you give yourself less than that? Think about it. I'll be right back. Molded by neural imprints, our mind creates a perception of the world, and we act on our perceptions. This amazing discovery has caused researchers of every kind to study the consequences of humans as perceivers. Their findings are invaluable in this new COVID-19 reality. Many people are struggling to deal with the changes this virus has imposed on them. There's even a therapy that's focused on helping people adopt behavior that is based on these new social rules. A language exists to help us understand the limits related to our neurological perceptions. Many people suppose that nothing exists out of the world they perceive. They couldn't be more wrong. What we perceive is a function of how we are doing it. In a fixed mindset, it's very difficult to imagine that other ways of perceiving might exist. When we are totally focused on using a crayon colored red, for example, that fact is what prevents us from thinking about blue, green, or yellow. Similarly, believing any one thing can prevent a belief in something else. Married couples are often shocked when they realize that their moods are affecting their mind and their relationship. Feelings like jealousy, anger, or hurt can cause the mind to entertain the most negative biases and perceptions of a mate. But in another mood, when you feel love, that same person is perceived as the most wonderful being who can do no wrong. Because it's responsible for human behavior, you'll benefit from understanding the effect of paradigm. Let me illustrate how it works. One day, Susie and I were called on by the officials of a provincial park to help them solve a problem. We listened to them discuss it and were struck by their two diametrically opposed points of view. The team was at loggerheads over their perceptions of the dilemma. Divided evenly, one side spoke about the need to purchase new canoes in order to satisfy and increase client demand. The other side maintained that their budget would not afford the expenditure. One side was focused on canoes as an unbudgeted cost, while the other side argued for it as an investment that would increase revenues. They exposed two logical but paradigmatically opposed points of view. Sometimes our way of perceiving is so powerful that it pushes us to reject new data or to label new ideas impossible or inadequate. Since opinions are etched in our brain, our perceptions are neurological. So any mind that refuses to adjust has logical reasons for doing so. In the provincial park dilemma, I asked how much new canoes cost. Then we had them show us how much extra revenue could be generated. 
And then we wanted to know when the books had to balance. So we guided them in an exercise where they worked out the details of a compromise. The effect of paradigm explains that it's impossible to consider something that's not part of a subjective mind unless we consciously open that mind and let the data in. First, seek out as much information as possible, and then you'll know what to decide. Question the unknown. Interestingly, when we experience new data, our mind becomes much more alert to anything associated with that information. Remember the last time you bought a new car? Once you settled on a model you thought unique and different, you found yourself surrounded by the identical car as soon as you drove off the lot. Once you saw it in here, it appears out there. In that same reflection, I never really noticed disabled people until I was disabled myself. And my daughter told me that she never noticed how many women in her small town were pregnant until she was too. Out of sight, out of mind has a flip side. Out of mind, out of sight. An experiment conducted in Germany at the end of the 19th century gives us a glimpse into the power described by the effective paradigm. Sometimes our neural connections filter out information so well that instead of opening our mind and adjusting to include new data, the brain manipulates the data so it conforms to expectations. Our self-organizing brain has the power to delude us. Paradigms can provoke mind tricks. In the experiment, several subjects were asked to wear glasses that were designed to invert perception, causing them to see the world upside down. None were given any warning, nor were they allowed to adjust their vision or the glasses. Strangely, though, everyone reported that they saw the world right side up. The brain modified the data it received so it would conform to expected beliefs. Are you open to new ideas? Do you realize that your old paradigms are influencing you? How do your assumptions affect data coming from out there? Are you a believer? Do you realize that you can open your mind? The language of paradigms is related to how ideas connect in the brain. A paradigmatic complex describes a predetermined way of seeing that projects frustration to a person, an event, or a situation, and that clouds the mind. We punctuate arguments with absolutes like, you're always too busy, or things will never change, or everybody says so. If it's always, never, or everybody, well, that says everything. You win. No further discussion. We call that kind of logic a paradigmatic complex. The tendency to group together all the slights and perceived slights allows us to avoid taking responsibility for the moment for how we feel now. When it's always or never, the discussion ends. The evidence is abundant. If it's as you claim, you must be right. Again, if it's everybody or nobody, well, the majority is with you, so how convenient. You win. The problem with that kind of thinking is, in order for the mind to maintain an absolute position, it must cut off access to parts of the brain that might consider another realization. While you are busy reacting to a perceived truth, there's no possibility to move beyond that limit. You can't be more creative. In the opinion of the wise, Self-importance is our greatest enemy because it obliges us to spend most of our lives upset at the deeds and the misdeeds of our fellow men. What about you? Do you tend to paint things with the same broad strokes? 
Would you rather be right or be happy? Do you have a need to force your opinions on others? Do you keep having the same kinds of arguments? You might be suffering from a paradigmatic complex. The idea of living in a world of neurological paradigms gives birth to what are called paradigmatic authorities. Instead of presenting actual evidence, some people rely on the credibility of an authority. For example, there's a TV ad that claims that a certain brand of breakfast cereal is the best way to start the day because Michael Jordan eats it. A very good basketball player, Jordan is suddenly thrust into the guise of an expert on nutrition. Many people have given their life to another authority. The Pope is a classic example of this, as one billion Catholics believe he's infallible and God's sole authority on earth. He is God's head of state. In order to hold on to that belief, they must obey proclamations on a lot of significant ideas. They must surrender their inner authority, their reason, to his. A billion others would rather surrender theirs to Buddha. A billion more obey Muhammad. Who is your higher authority? Terrorists, like those in the 9-11 attack, share the radical notion of paradise just beyond their deadly mission. Many Americans would rather believe Donald J. Trump's silly-ass opinions on COVID-19 pandemic rather than the science or the experts. People sell out their own reason in exchange for easy answers. Everywhere, great numbers of people are weighed down by absolutes and rules they believe we cannot question. Consider how often the creative spirit is stifled because the boss says we can't, or opinion polls suggest that, or that's not the way we do things around here. History is filled with tales of how new paradigm thinkers stood against a local authority and were crucified for their efforts. As long as a majority of people believe that death and high taxes are inevitable, we don't question it. We don't rebel against it. We quietly accept its complete authority. We pay through the nose and die at the end of the script. A yogi named Dafri John says we can be enlightened and shake off the shackles of our negative karma by constantly asking ourselves the question, who is the master I am serving now? Substitute the word master for the word authority, belief, or habit, and he's talking about overcoming paradigms, our beliefs about how things should be. Who are the authorities that you endorse? What absolute truths dictate your choices? To whom have you surrendered your reason? Is your moral sense dictated by factors out there or by conviction in here? There is a phenomenon called paradigm paralysis. That's described as the limit caused by a narrow vision of the world. Author and business consultant Joel Barker writes, Paradigm paralysis is a mortal disease caused by certainty. He explains how paradigm paralysis pushes us, individuals and groups, to believe that our way is the only way, the one correct and true way of seeing an event, a situation, a problem, a circumstance, or anything else. Cults of every description have a field day with this kind of neurological paralysis, but they don't have an exclusive claim to it. The certainties of having the ultimate answer has provoked holy wars, destroyed societies, cultures, and companies, it has ended relationships, and halted personal evolution. Many madmen from history left flagrant examples of this disease. For example, both Napoleon and Hitler failed to account for the Russian winter, and it cost them heavily. 
And a more recent example, the Mars Orbiter Climate Satellite was lost because the manufacturer, Lockheed Martin, and the client, NASA, used respectively the American and the metric systems of measurement to calculate the launch requirements. Each side was so sure the other knew how they worked, no one checked, and the error cost taxpayers $300 million U.S. Being sure that you're the only one with the correct answer is convenient because it requires no discussion. It also causes an incredible variety of neuroses, psychoses, and misery for others. You might know someone who still can't get over his version of a past event, insisting that his way of remembering it, even if the evidence suggests otherwise, is the only way to see it. Paradigm paralysis leads to delusion, obsession, and fanaticism. Take a look at the state of politics today, where one side actually demonizes the other. The right wing is convinced that left-leaning liberals are pure evil. This is no longer about good people with different opinions on how to manage ourselves. Politics has become a battle for good and evil. Are you the only one to see things the right way? Do you believe there's only one direction, one true answer, one way of understanding? When's the last time you were 100% sure about something? When's the last time you were 100% wrong? Neural paradigms are involved whenever we adopt a look, be it macho or hip-hop, Barbie doll or preppy. Are you a princess or a rocker or a jock? Or do you have another look? Have you ever adopted paradigmatic behavior? That is, do you behave according to a predetermined code, how things are supposed to be? We learn through mimicry or by copying a paradigm's rules of engagement. We copy what seems to work. Teens, for example, seem to rebel against authority in order to assert their own style and values. Do you remember the hippie movement or beatniks before them? What about the grunge movement or the goths? I remember being clued in by an executive in a company I worked for when I was just starting out. Newly promoted to manager, I attended a social function and, after I ordered a beer, I was told that I should think of drinking something more adult now that I was in management. So I switched to scotch. Business types learn to behave like businessmen and women by queuing into other business types. Doctors learn to act like doctors at med school and in hospital internships, and police officers watch cop shows to become police officers. Politicians can give you an easy lessons on paradigmatic behavior. We might see them promise pretty much anything just to get elected. I know a few who have proudly worn every political stripe and belong to every political party. A paradigm demands a specific behavior. So what are you going to do? Do you feel obliged to act or react in certain ways? Have you adopted a trend or a fad? What rules of behavior do you expect from others? Can you separate yourself from your beliefs? What kind of behavior would you profit from trying? Do you celebrate your uniqueness? You'll notice computer geeks trade information in a language that's particular to their field. Bits and bytes and megapixels. A majority of folks have little clue about what they're talking about as they engage in paradigmatic exchanges. Jocks do the same thing with sports talk. Laterals and bunts and punts. Accountants go on about fractional banking and investment strategies. And using Latin, gardeners talk about flowers and shrubs. When we share a paradigm, we use words and ideas that others don't get. 
We share values that others don't have. We exchange paradigms. You'll note that people with opposing points of view who try to shape a conversation to fit their limits. You'll also note that communications break down real quick when someone holds fast to their ideas and don't share with others. And that a debate loses all coherence and logic when one side has a hidden agenda. There's a very funny scene in a Simpsons episode that illustrates how these paradigmatic exchanges work. The family is visiting a tavern in Australia and Marge wants something to drink. The bartender asks her what she'll have and she answers, I'll have a coffee, please. To which she replies, Righto, a beer. Marge repeats, No, no, I want a coffee, please. And he says, Okay, then, a beer. She stands up to him and asserts, I want a coffee. And he answers, You want a beer. Nose to nose, she shouts, Coffee! And he affirms, Righto, beer. Their paradigms were trading words, but not a shred of understanding. Do you understand the jargon from other paradigms? Can you exchange and get information from people with different ways of seeing than yours? Do you have the tools to help you see past your own habitual views? The ability to examine new ways of thinking, to explore a whole thought as well as its component parts, to evaluate both sides of an argument, and to draw creative or expansive syntheses from information requires paradigm flexibility. If you imagine a corporate CEO changing his mind as a result of a comment made by the janitor, you'll get what I mean. Paradigm flexibility is indispensable in order to develop a more creative intelligence. It requires high self-esteem and the ability to grow, to transform yourself. Can you easily change your mind? Do you find it a challenge to adapt to new situations? Do you believe your paradigm is rigid or is it flexible? What do others think of the way you receive ideas? New paradigm pioneers are they who, against all odds, explore what could be. Pioneers extend the boundaries of the known by asking, why not? Not satisfied with the status quo, they create innovations that disrupt comfort zones and all paradigm thinking, and in some cases, they even revolutionize the world. Stephen Jobs, founder of Apple Corporation, reduced the computer to personal size and thus invented a new paradigm of computers. Bill Gates thought everyone should have an operating system on a PC that could run a small business, and he helped revolutionize our way of engaging in commercial exchanges. Elon Musk thinks about the future because he lives there. New paradigm pioneers believe in the power of the individual to influence change. Limits are waiting to be transcended. A few years ago, I designed an innovative jungle wheelchair. Completely anti-rust, it was made from aviation-grade aluminum and ripcord nylon. It had mountain bike tires and many other special features. After it was made, the builder was swamped with orders. I may have been the first paralyzed person who wants to trek jungles, but I certainly wasn't the only one. Are your beliefs limiting your happiness? Are you a creature of habit or a new paradigm pioneer? Do you quickly accept new ideas? Are you more of a status quo gatekeeper or a protector of the past? Because the unknown is, of course, unknown, choosing to change means a person must shift paradigms without any guarantee that the new one will be better than the old one. Change requires a jump into the unknown. 
whether the jump is provoked by an unexpected situation, like my car accident, or it follows the input of new data, like COVID-19, it can alter our way of seeing. The only requirement for consciously causing a paradigm shift is the realization that the old way of thinking just isn't enough. If your way of perceiving doesn't serve you anymore, change it. Let me suggest this instant IQ test. If your perception of the world is that it is getting larger, funnier, and more beautiful, your intelligence is steadily increasing. If your perception of the world is that it's getting smaller, nastier, and uglier, your stupidity is steadily increasing. Think about it. I'll be right back. Nature requires individuals to shift paradigms so that they can adopt its management rule, altruistic self-interest. I know a little about changing my mind. Trust me, though, had anyone suggested when I was nailed to a hospital bed paralyzed after my car accident that I'd spend my life in jungles, in a wheelchair, I'd sincerely have answered, you've lost your mind. From my perspective at that time, the kind of change required would have been radical, to say the least. It would have made no sense to even think about it. But as a result of that accident, I learned to embrace change itself. I learned to overcome whatever prevented me from living the life I wanted. So I focused on being happy, and I let God take care of the details. By the time I'd made it to the edge of the jungle, facing the unknown was already natural. But you should know that I was real close the day before. We can adapt to monumental changes by taking baby steps. I reorganized my life around a higher intent, joy. I had to eliminate whatever stood in my way from experiencing joy. I realized that nature doesn't impose its rules, even if there are no exceptions to them. Nature determined that empowerment must be claimed and organized. Change takes more than can do and a lot of want to. It also takes unbending intent. Once I understood the world of paradigms, that my beliefs determined my options and decisions, I looked for a tool that could help me overcome my limiting way of perceiving. In her book, The Art of Strategy, R.L. Wing, an expert on the I Ching, discusses how to overcome limits. Ms. Wing suggests that we can defeat our inner demons by managing five stages in a holistic strategy. The first stage is to analyze the situation. This important first step allows us to see if we are ready to take up the challenge. If, for example, you determine that having more self-esteem can bring you closer to realizing your goals, then you must look at each facet of what increasing your self-esteem might mean. Next, you must note the changes that will impact your life. If you conclude that working on your self-esteem will be worth it in the long run. If it's something you want and are determined to work for, then you are ready. If you experience the slightest hesitation, do something else. The self-empowerment process doesn't care where you start overcoming your limits. What matters is determining what you want out of life and not stopping until you get there. I tell people who don't know what they want out of life to pin a large piece of paper to the back of their bedroom door. 
Next, I tell them to write the word joy at the center of that sheet and to circle it. The exercise involves contemplating that word every day for a month and writing down the ideas that come to mind. Think about being joyful and write down everything that you can imagine might give you joy. Circle it and with a pencil stroke, join it to the central theme. After a few minutes, you'll find that you've run out of ideas, so stop. Continue the next day. What does joy look like when you're in a different mood? Work that piece of paper for a month or so, continuously drawing circles around each new idea, diverging your thoughts outward like a starburst. Allow your thinking to contemplate any circle and take any idea in any direction. Write down all your ideas until no more come to mind. Then draw lines to join circles as you see similar and somehow linked. Shape those ideas into new potentials. Keep exploring that potential joy as if light at the end of the tunnel. Just keep moving in that direction, adding joyful promise to your life, keeping those potentials that prove true and letting go of the rest. Number two in Wing's five-part strategy is to learn as much as you can about your inner opponent. She says we should familiarize ourselves with our habits and our reactions and their effects on the other aspects of our life. In my previous example, where, when, and how do you suffer from low self-esteem? Take notes. Soon you'll begin to understand your resistance, and then you can trap it, giving it no room to escape and defeat it. Number three is develop a winning strategy. Be precise and detail every step in an action plan. Avoid half measures and be sure to include rewards along the way to encourage your continued progress. Design a strategy like you're planning to rid yourself of a pesky insect or to unclog a drain. You're doing something unpleasant but very needed. Defeating your inner enemy might require special preparation and tools. If need be, get therapeutic help or read up on the subject. Vanquish self-pity, fear, anger, despair, and those other crutches and excuses that encourage you to quit. Focus on how to complete each step in your strategy. Number four, analyze your strategy's chances for success. As you act, Wing says, it's important that you assess your plan to ensure that once it's in place, things will occur as desired. If you anticipate that a decision might affect others, for example, you should determine and assess the exact repercussions on them so as to avoid having to slow down or modify your plan. Take care of every detail. A well-thought-out strategy will save you time, energy, and resources on the long run. Consider how to fight a thousand-headed dragon. Either do battle with each one of those snarling, snapping heads one after the other, or cut the dragon's neck and watch all the heads fall at once. In my example on the need for self-esteem, choose the most disruptive element preventing you from knowing the self that you want to invest in. Start there, change that one element, and the rest will follow quite naturally. Stage five in Wing's strategy is act consciously. Adjustments follow action. Be a leader and lead so you can adjust. The battle is between your reactive mind and its limited paradigms and your new emerging creative mind. So be proactive. Your plan will require certain doings and certain not doings, so consciously adjust as you go along. A warrior of spirit is aware that doubts and fears slow progress more than any rival. 
Be detached so that you behave in ways that are above reproach. Act with creative intent, investing in yourself wherever it will do the greatest good. Take responsibility for your choices so that your every act is an act of power. A case in point, after I decided to study nature, the choices I made led me to tropical jungles. Eventually, my decision required me to have a 4x4 vehicle. That need for something wheelchair accessible prompted my decision to buy a Jeep in Montreal and drive it 7,000 kilometers to have one ready for me there. Then, as long as I'm driving that distance, why not visit cultural sites along the way? I mapped out where to find archaeological sites that date to the Bronze Age. On that drive, as a result of a series of very fortunate events, I discovered a myth that empowered America's first leaders. We visited several sites that honor Lord Quetzalcoatl, or the Feathered Serpent. If you read up about him, you'll be amazed to discover fascinating tales of power. The attributes of Quetzalcoatl vary in history and geography. There are several stories about his birth, either from a virgin named Chimelman, to whom God appeared in a dream, or, in another story, he is born of Kilkyu, a goddess who gave birth to children as stars in the Milky Way. An older myth says Quetzalcoatl is related to the sun, to the creator. He appeared after a great flood caused the physical world to end. He was a powerful and very wise Christ-like figure in Mictlan, the underworld, and he created this fifth world from the bones of the previous four. With the help of the goddess Siwakwatl, using his own blood, he imbued humanity with knowledge. Today he presides as the god of arts, crafts, creativity, and intelligence. Many places in Mexico and Central America claim to have been founded by Lord Quetzalcoatl. In Teotihuacan, near Mexico City, the colossal pyramid of Quetzalcoatl sits next to the Pyramid of the Sun, God the Father, and of the Moon, God the Mother. These three monuments are aligned on the central boulevard. My interesting discovery on that drive to Costa Rica is that Quetzalcoatl is not just a name. It's also an ideogram, which is, independent of any particular language, defined as a graphic symbol that represents an idea or a concept. Ideograms convey meaning by resembling physical objects. They be considered pictograms that tell stories. The Quetzalcoatl ideogram is made up of totem animals, the resplendent Quetzal, a beautiful bird of the Trogan family, and the Coatl, which is a serpent. The story explains a larger idea that uses five totems, the Coatl, the Jaguar, the Congo or Howler monkey, the Bald Eagle, and the resplendent Quetzal to explain a sacred heritage. The myth of Quetzalcoatl tells us how to communicate with these five animals and learn strategic aspects of leadership. From the Coatl, we learn to be cold-blooded stalkers of information. From the Jaguar, we learn how to dream possibilities, including how to claim our higher nature. From the Congo, or the monkey scribe, we learn to discern opportunities from possibilities. From the eagle, we learn the power of leadership and from the resplendent Quetzal, we learn to be persuasive communicators. The myth tells us that we're favored by nature with these totem animals to learn from them. 
Did you know that snakes taste molecules of emotion with their forked tongue? They are experts on their environment and know exactly who lives there. They can lay still for hours, days, even weeks, invisible against the background thanks to their coloring, to stalk their prey. Snakes are masters at the art of stalking. But did you know that the myth refers to our own reptilian brain and spinal cord? Folks, when I was hospitalized at Montreal's Neurological Institute after my accident, I had the very good fortune of getting into many conversations with my neurologist and the members of his team. They impressed me when they related how operations on human brains only require a local anesthetic to dull the scalp. They told me that the brain and spine don't register sensation, and neither does the skull. They recalled communicating with patients while their brain was being operated on. Awake, patients can relate vital information that inform the neurosurgeons. I understood the connection between the caudal and the need to be cold-blooded in order to stalk information. Emotion is the charge that attracts ideas. Feel good about something and it is attractive, but feel bad and you'll trigger a fight-or-flight response. Treating facts cold-bloodedly protects them from prejudicial emotional response. This is important if you are involved in any sort of self-examination. A person with a fragile ego will most often shy away from information that casts him in less than favorable light. The second animal the ancients chose as a totem to represent the mammalian brain, specifically our right hemisphere's limbic system, is the jaguar. The limbic system supports a variety of functions, including managing our emotions, motivations, and long-term memory. They could have chosen any mammal, but chose the jaguar because of its coloring. Ancient sages suggested that the jaguar's gold coat represents everything that is noble in human emotion, courage, joy, love, etc., while the black marks are remnants of our reptilian perception, fight or flight and strike. The myth says that we become jaguar kings or queens when we master our emotions so as to feel courage, love, joy, passion, and all the rest. Because we can connect with our long-term memories, we can correct our mistakes. With love in our mind, we can even try new approaches and dream new possibilities and directions. Congo, or the howler monkey, was chosen to represent our left brain hemisphere's tribal thinking circuits. This hominid brain manages our intellectual or mental plane of awareness. This is where our emotional memory becomes logic. It's where we give value to words and ideas. Don't think of monkeys as inferior creatures. They're just different. In many ways, like physical strength, bold-faced bravado, insistent communications, they may even be superior to us. I assure you that of all the inhabitants I observed at the Mayamu Jungle Reserve in Costa Rica, the howler monkey is the most successful. Those critters manage the 500 fruit trees we planted as if they own them. Real opportunists, they know what trees are in fruit, when, and how to get there first. In consequence, they spend no more than six hours a day providing for all their needs and that of their family. The majority of their time is spent chilling socializing, grooming, and sleeping. We'll learn to be better leaders from the eagle, though. He is a good symbol because he soars over the territory and thus has an amazing overview. In my seminars and conferences on the subject, 
I use short videos to illustrate each of these totem animals. My eagle video shows one that is swooping down to catch a fish out of the ocean. I tell my audience that as eagle eyes as it is, as a fine hunter as it may be, at the last moment, realizing that its extended talons won't quite reach the prey, it had to adjust and thrust forward. The eagle represents the brain's neocortex, which is our feedback loop. This most recently evolved section of the human brain allows us to see ourselves in action so that we can adjust our behavior. We are self-aware. A leader acts knowing he can adjust. If the result he obtains is not what he dreamed, he adjusts. In this way, it's impossible to lose. We become winners the moment we realize that a strategy isn't working and we adjust to try something else. If we quit, it's over. And if we keep doing the same old, same old, well, that's the definition Einstein gave us for insanity, to keep repeating the same acts with an expectation of getting different results. But if we act to adjust, then we cannot lose. How many times must you adjust? Well, until you obtain the results that you want, do or die. If you don't succeed after, I don't know, 10 tries, call me and we'll figure something out. The fifth role of a strategic leader is persuasive communicator. The Quetzal was chosen as the totem animal because its behavior obeys creator's intent. If you do a Google search, you'll find a stunning bird colored forest green, red, and white. Often considered the handsomest bird on earth, the male grows meter-long tail feathers that give it the appearance of an elegant kite when it flies. Its green feathers allow it to remain near invisible in the cloud forests of Central America where it lives, but it regularly comes out of the shadows and perches on a denuded, low-hanging branch in a clearing. There, where all the predators can see, it preens and poses while singing a beautiful song. Why? Why does this bird put itself at risk in this way? Well, the answer is simple. While all of the eyes in the forest are fixed on it, and every predator is wondering how can I get a taste of that, its wife and kids are somewhere else feeding. The moment that the Quetzal thinks a predator has lost interest in it, it lets out a shriek of alarm and its family hurries home. With altruistic self-interest, the resplendent Quetzal puts itself at risk for the love of its family. The ancients realized that it had to be persuasive so its communication receives the attention that it deserves. So far, we've had the inner resources to stock information, dream possibilities, see opportunity, and act to adjust. So now we have a perfect plan or product or idea. But others have not done the work that we have, and so they do not have our realizations in mind. We must guide them into making appropriate neural connections so that they see things in the same way that we do. If you practice each of these five roles, you will experience their benefits. Actors practice new behavior all the time. The result of adopting these roles is that you will acquire their mastery, and that's magic power. After I left the hospital, I vowed that I would get to know and understand myself better. To fill the need, I did all kinds of new things, encountered all kinds of obstacles, and adjusted every time. Even if the world was not adapted to me in a wheelchair, I learned to be adaptable, adaptable. The five roles of a strategic thinker is a role-playing technique 
that lets you shape raw data into creative ideas and profitable projects based on the natural workings of the brain as a self-organizing system, it means to seek out data from anywhere in the role of stalker and dream that information for insight. To do this, give the data you've gathered deep thought often. Because understanding follows experience, deep wisdom will emerge while playing the role of a seer of opportunity. Once you have an idea that might work, you're ready to act. Because you will labor in the real world, first try your idea on a small scale to adjust where needed. Take care of all the details and plan a winning strategy. Then communicate your intent to others. Be persuasive. To actualize myself and fill my personal, social, and professional needs, I aligned my reptilian brain circuits and cold-bloodedly gathered the information I required. I learned to stock information in asphalt jungles, political jungles, and cyber jungles. There was so much data available that I had to fix clear goals so as not to lose myself. Also, I learned to transcend my fears and limits in order to follow my intuition and curiosity. I sought information in a great many places. I entertained lots of opinions, lots of options, and I remained broad-minded when considering my sources of data. I participated in networks that could provide me with the kind of information I was interested in. In short, I let myself be guided and inspired by all kinds of things. After stalking information, I became a dreamer of possibilities. Let that data sit in my mind for a while, where my consciousness could transform it into creative concepts. Dreamers activate their mammalian brain circuits to let their limbic system of emotion probe the depths of awareness. What's good about my idea? What's bad? What are its strengths? What are its weaknesses? As the new information bounced around, I ahad creative potentials. To be an effective dreamer, learn to synthesize your findings and put them in some sort of logical order. I learned to identify the contradictions in my findings and to adopt those views that seem to satisfy the greater good. As dreamers have hopes and wishes, they must open their mind to every potential. Do not get hooked on a particular facet of an idea. Remain open to larger possibilities. In order to experience the third role, seer of opportunities, I used my left brain logic to evaluate the concept to assess its potential. Playing this role by challenging my ideas and questioning myself about their intent and desired income. What are you trying to accomplish? On what aspects of an idea or project can you build? What are the advantages and disadvantages of your idea? Have you thought it through to a realistic conclusion? Are you sure the information you're using is still valid? If your idea can't be developed, what aspects of it can you salvage? What are you assuming? Are you ready to take a decision? And then leaders act. I played this role by tuning into my neocortex to get instant feedback. I recognized that I was my own greatest obstacle and attitude was my only real battleground. Here we must solve our thinking from what if to what is. Leaders make strategic plans. What could be done? And then they work out the details. Who, what, where, when, and how. Overcome procrastination and every excuse and defensive attitude. Atop the persuasive communicator role by learning to be pragmatic 
and by considering win-win-win scenarios whenever others are involved. Persuasive communicators are the animators of their creation. They bring ideas to life with their transactional energy. To actualize my own dreams, I learned to recognize that self-esteem has little to do with what others think of me and everything to do with how I think of them. I stopped wanting to be loved and started to love others without condition. It soon became very clear who deserved my love or not. I'll tell you more about what I found in episode 5. I learned to communicate my needs as clearly and as simply as I could and to remain receptive to others so I could adjust to them and let them adjust to me. I learned to separate questions from objections. I discovered that, most often, quiet insistence wins over loud persistence. I'll conclude by suggesting that you try these five strategic roles so you can acquire the power to actualize your own dreams. I'm a lot better at playing them after 40 years of practice, and Susie is a master stalker, so I can assure you that the technique is very effective. It is empowering. I'll put a URL link in the description to this podcast so you can download its instructions free from my toolbox. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time with Episode 5, Love is Magic. It is subtitled, How Nature's Law is Key to a Joyful Life. You won't want to miss it. Folks, if you enjoyed this presentation, please give it a positive review. Subscribe to the channel and tell your friends about it. If you didn't, write and tell me why not. If you want a transcript of this podcast, visit my website at thejungletimes.com. Thanks again. Adios for now. The Jungle Times podcast was written and animated by Lawrence Poole. If you enjoyed his presentation, share it with your friends and colleagues, click the like button, and leave your opinions in the comment section. Visit thejungletimes.com to learn more about Lawrence and his adventures. Follow him on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. You can order his latest book, Invest in Your Creative Capital, from Amazon.com. Subscribe to this channel in order to receive all the latest news. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.